We are shortening things up a little bit today, trying to uh, get you out of here before the weather hits too hard. So, uh, we have a, a long passage today. I'm going to read it as we uh, go through it. Uh, Matthew chapter 15. Jesus talks about the heart in that passage. But let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You bring us again to this great gospel of Matthew to learn about Jesus. Lord, as we read this and learn from this text, may we not be as the Pharisees, as hypocrites who judge others, thinking that we're above correction, as we are prone to do. We want to listen to our hearts and not to yours. So by your Spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to learn from you. We ask this morning that you would change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This past summer, there was this big sports story that happened off the field. And uh, it relates directly to the issues that we find in our text uh, this morning. The story involved Riley Cooper, a star receiver for the Philadelphia Eagles uh, football team. And apparently in July, uh, Cooper went to a Kenny Chesney concert and got incredibly drunk and was denied backstage access at the concert and uh, used a racial slur to refer to the bouncers who had kept him out. And unknown to him at the time, another fan who was there had taken his phone out and videoed the whole incident and posted it on YouTube. So Cooper couldn't deny what he said because it was captured on video and millions of people saw it. So there wasn't any of this, it was taken out of context, you didn't understand, or any of that kind of uh, political doublespeak. And he got in all sorts of trouble. Uh, he's apologized multiple times, he was fined by the team and, and by the league, he was basically kicked out of training camp uh, for a number of days, he had to go to counseling, he had to go to sensitivity training, and was generally ridiculed and humiliated. Uh, this time. And on one level, this sort of thing actually goes on all the time. Uh, people get drunk and stay, say dumb things. But it doesn't every day involve a professional football player. But this time it did. And because it did, Riley Cooper had to endure a huge amount of media scrutiny, uh, which is unpleasant at best. And part of that media scrutiny was there were a great number of articles written about him. One of them was in Sports Illustrated, written by the uh, noted football writer Peter King, and it really struck home uh, with me. And as he was reflecting on this sad incident, Peter King said, and I quote, Cooper is a fighter and a guy who lives hard, but there hasn't been any sign that he's a racist to anyone on the team. There's something disturbing inside the man. And if he's being honest, he wants to learn why such a vile thing came out of him a few months ago. Listen to those words again. He wrote, there's something disturbing inside the man. And of course, that's true. To have such words come out of Cooper's mouth unprovoked, fueled by alcohol, signals a deeper issue. 
But if we're not careful, like so many of the writers in the media scrutiny, we can find ourselves suggesting that somehow what's inside Riley Cooper is unusual. We can find ourselves thinking that having something disturbing inside of us, which leads to vile words coming out of our mouth, is out of the ordinary, is unusual. And it's very easy for people, as many uh, writers did, basically gave you the impression of what he did is different. It's out of the ordinary. It's unusual. That's what people like him do. The rest of us aren't like that. We're much more pure. The rest of us don't have disturbing things going on inside of us. The rest of us are better angels. People like him are vile. People like us are pure. That's exactly the mindset of the Pharisees in today's passage in Matthew 15, which is overall dealing with the subject of hypocrisy. See, the Pharisees divided the world into two groups. People like him are unclean. People like us are clean. People like him are profane. People like us are holy. We're on the side of the clean and the pure and the holy. And why aren't you on our side? And to them, Jesus says in verse 7, you hypocrites. And so here in our text, we see Jesus challenges hypocrisy just as boldly as he challenges every other kind of sin. And he's going to challenge and teach on hypocrisy with three different groups of people in this passage. And so the first encounter we see is Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus and the Pharisees, that's the first blank there in your outline, I hope. I did this late. Sometimes I forget, yes. (laughs) I put the blanks in. Sometimes I leave them there. I tell everybody to fill in the blank, it's already there. Let's start with verse 1, Jesus and the Pharisees. It says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, we live in an anti-traditional age. What's new is good. What's old is not as good. And that's why when you go to the grocery store and buy detergent, uh, almost all of the detergents in the grocery store say new and improved. 20 years ago, they were new and improved. 10 years ago, they were new and improved. If you go down that aisle this week, you'll see that most of them say new and improved, And I'm betting 10 years from now, they will all say they're new 
and improved. You wouldn't buy a detergent that said old and unimproved. You know, it's all new and improved. So it's not the tendency of our culture to pursue everything that came out in the past. But this passage has important lessons for us. This tendency to the development of unbiblical traditions began in a time pretty much like ours. And the first important lesson Jesus wants us to learn is this nature of man-made traditions, of trying to uh, make things new and improved and keep them always new and improved. So we have this picture here of these traditions, and we have Jesus' response to them and his verdict about them. So what do we do? We come to these passages where we see Jesus arguing with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the elders, the rabbis, all the people that we would call the religious elites today. And it's very easy when you get to these arguments in the Gospels to say, well, that's not very relevant today. I mean, it's ancient stuff. Who cares about the cleanliness laws or ceremonial washings or all the rituals the Jews observed? Who cares about that stuff anymore? You have to realize Jesus never argues unnecessarily. Every time Jesus engages uh, people, particularly his enemies, there's some profound principle at stake. And that's just what we have here. In this first section, we're introduced to the fact that we all have this deep sense of spiritual defilement, of moral defilement. And that's what we see uh, right off. The Pharisees are very upset because Jesus' disciples doesn't wash before they eat. We read there in verse 2, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat. So why is this an important issue? First, you have to understand the nature of this charge the Pharisees are bringing against Jesus' disciples. They're not um, charging Jesus with being, as it were, a bad mother who didn't have her children wash her hands uh, before a meal. They're not bringing a charge of bad hygiene. That's really not the issue here. In the tradition of the elders, there's a great concern for obedience to certain stipulations of the ceremonial law in the Old Testament. And one of those stipulations says if you come in contact with something that's unclean, then you are unfit to worship God. You have to go through this purification rite, this ceremony, before you'll be ready to worship the Lord again. And somewhere along the line, the Pharisees decided, you know, you may be going through the marketplace, and you may accidentally pick up some unclean food, and you may accidentally touch it, let alone eat it. Or you may be going through the marketplace, and you might accidentally brush uh, by a Gentile, a filthy, unbelieving Gentile. And so before you come to sit down for a meal, you're defiled. In fact, we're going to assume that somehow you've touched somebody or something that's unclean, and uh, you're defiled pretty much before every meal. But we have a solution for that. We have a remedy just for you. We're going to institute this new practice of ceremonial washing before the meal so you can come and have water poured over your hands and if you've been accidentally made unclean or touched something unclean, now you'll get ceremonially uh, washed and you can eat the meal. But then they look out and the disciples aren't doing that. 
They're not ritually washing their hands. And they basically say, Jesus, don't you realize the bad example these people are setting for all the other godly people in Israel? They don't follow the traditions of the elders in Israel. So the issue then is the Pharisees are very strict to holding to the ceremonial law in the Old Testament, in particular the cleanliness laws. Now, if you go back and read the cleanliness laws, uh, they're in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, uh, you're going to find them quite confusing, and many you will find utterly unnecessary. There's lots and lots of them. I'll give you the basic gist of what they mean. In the Old Testament, you can't go to the temple to worship God if you've been in contact with dirt, disease, or decay. So we got the three Ds there sort of summarized. Dirt, disease, and decay. So the priests have to wash their hands and their feet before they go into the sanctuary. If you touched anything dead, a dead animal, a dead person, you can't go for a week, automatic, even if you do all the washings. It's just going to take a week of washing to really get you clean enough. If you have some kind of a infection or a skin disease or you're bleeding or your uh, body's produced pus in response to an infection, you can't go worship. In other words, if you have some connection to dirt, decay, or disease, you're not allowed in. And, you know, I'm reading about this, and it just realized, sort of for the first time, you ever have that, read scriptures you've read lots and lots of times, and then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, never thought of that before. Had one of those uh, this week. Basically, a worshiper in the Old Testament has the same relationship to dirt that a doctor has going into surgery today. You know, what does the doctor have to do before surgery? They have these giant sinks outside the operating room. And he goes and he washes with all this special soap. And they really scrub. I mean, it's not like my grandkids where they kind of wave at the water. You know, I mean, they get in there and they got special soap and sponges. And they're like, you know, you think they're taking the skin off. And they really scrub up. You never see a doctor who goes from like doing yard work straight to brain surgery. I hope. You know, it doesn't happen. He, he, he arrives at the hospital and he has to go through these rites of purification, of washing to make sure he's clean before he can go into surgery. And it's the same way. If you're going to go to God in the Old Testament, you've got to scrub up first. There's all these kinds of rites of purification. If you have any contact with decay, any contact with anything that might even be decay or dirt or disease, if you looked at decay or dirt or disease, you have to scrub and scrub and scrub. You have the same relationship in the Old Testament uh, to worship as doctors today have to surgery. You have to go through all of the washing. And the point is, the cleanliness laws are there to teach us a number of very important things. They teach us about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. But it's a lot easier, actually, today for us to understand them because we actually know a whole lot more about dirt, disease, and decay uh, now than the people did then. And God is essentially saying to summarize all of this, that sin does to the soul what dirt, disease, and decay do to the body. Sin does to the soul 
what dirt, disease, and decay do to the body. Sin defiles the soul the same way that dirt, disease, and decay defile the body. Now, what does defile mean? How does it defile the body? There's a number of ways. Uh, first of all, dirt, disease, and decay defile the body because they isolate you. They alienate you. You know, Think about it. You're, you're going to go to downtown to see the sights uh, in D.C., and you get on the metro, and you see a very poor person there, perhaps a homeless uh, person. And even if your worldview, your uh, Christian sympathy helps you to be very sympathetic to that person, you still can't get within 10 feet of him. Why? Because of the smell and all the filthy stuff that's on his clothes. It's just hard to get near. I mean, there's hardly a culture in the world that doesn't say, if you want to meet people, if you want to get close to people, wash. Clean up, because dirt defiles you. And of course, infection defiles you. You can't touch something that's infectious. It defiles you. God's saying sin does the same thing. It keeps you away from other people. That's why we have a nursery policy that says if your kid's sick, don't bring them to nursery because then all the other kids are going to get sick. And then all the other moms are going to get mad. And then they're going to get sick. So they'll be sick and mad. And it just, it's just bad. Don't do that. Second, what do they do? It eats away at you on the inside. It's cancerous, literally. A long time ago, she didn't know this, my wife explained this to me many, many, many years ago. But the dirt on your clothes makes your clothes wear out faster. Something growing up I had absolutely no idea of. But if you don't keep your clothes clean, the dirt gets in and wears out the fabric through friction and so forth uh, much faster. In the same way, dirt and disease and decay wear out the body, pulls the body apart, makes the body break down. And God wants you to realize that sin does the same thing. It not only alienates you, but it starts to work on the inside and break things down and wear you out and makes your soul begin to fall apart. Third, dirt, disease, and decay, uh, stain, uh, misshape, disfigure, uh, sort of like mildew. It leaves this stain. So what's God saying? I think he says, you know, why do you have war? Why do you have divorce? Why do you have conflict? Why do you have dissension? Why do you have these struggles in your soul? Because of sin. Sin is what ails the world. Sin defiles you. It alienates you. It stains you. Now wash. And so in verses 3 through 9, we see Jesus reply to these Pharisees. He uses a phrase that sort of parallels the charge the Pharisees have made against the disciples. They said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Jesus' response to them, verse 3, is, why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? They attacked his disciples, he responded, and they attacked uh, the disciples for breaking the tradition, and he says, well, you're breaking the commandments. Letting you know right off the top that the commandments are more important than the traditions. And so he compares the two, the commandments and the tradition. 
He says, God's command is we honor our parents, that we take care of them in time of need. Nowhere does that commandment say they have to be deserving or good or righteous or nice to you. That's a whole separate sermon. In fact, I've already preached that. Maybe it's still on the website. You'd have to go pretty far back to find it, I think. But they have a tradition. It's called the Law of Korban, which we know from the parallel passage in the Gospel of Mark. And it's kind of strange. Basically, and I don't understand completely, but essentially how it works is you have goods and finances and material possessions, and you're supposed to use those to take care of your family, including your parents. But if you dedicate it to God, then you can't touch it, can't use it. You still get to keep it, and you get to enjoy it, but essentially when you die, it goes to the temple. So basically you're just designating things in advance, saying, I can't use these things to help anyone else. They belong to God. And so if your parents come over and say, wow, you have four couches. If you sold one of those couches, we could eat next week. They say, no, but the couches are for the Lord. You can't sell the couches. You pronounce that korban. It's devoted to God. And then you could legally withhold it from having to help out your family. And I don't know why that practice developed. I don't know why moral people decided it was okay to do that. But Jesus says, by inventing that practice, you've circumvented the whole point of the commandment to honor and care for your parents. By your tradition, you've made the word of God null and void. But then he says, and here's the important part, the reason you're doing this is because your hearts are not right. And he quotes Isaiah in verses uh, 8 and 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He basically says you prefer lip service over real worship. And your hearts, even though you're pretending to love the Lord, in fact, are far from the Lord, and your worship is empty and vain and its form and ritual, and you've placed your traditions over and above God's word. So now having rebuked them, he turns away from the Pharisees and engages the second group, which is the people. So we see Jesus and the people, verse 10. And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles the person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. So he basically is explaining what he just said to the Pharisees. He tells them, hear and understand. Jesus is starting to teach us about the nature of true holiness, and he's warning the people about the Pharisees. Hear and understand is a statement designed to warn you something important is about to be said. Listen carefully, it's going to be significant. And he says something that I think would have horrified the scribes and the Pharisees. He says it's not what goes into the mouth, it's what comes out of the mouth. It's moral defilement is far more important than ritual defilement. Keeping and obeying the moral law 
is far more important than keeping and obeying the ceremonial law. This is a big deal. These people love the ceremonial law. And they love all the additions to the law that have been passed down uh, by all the rabbis. And Jesus says, moral defilement, much bigger issue than ritual defilement. And the implication of Jesus' statement, by the way, and this comes out clearer in Mark, is he is abolishing the ceremonial law for his followers. Mark makes it clear in his passage in Mark 7 because he adds a comment after Jesus says it's not what goes in uh, from the outside, it's what comes out from the inside. And Mark adds this phrase, thus he declared all foods clean. All those laws about clean and unclean foods just got wiped away. He's saying the ceremonial requirements with regard to clean and unclean foods is no longer binding for all the followers of the Lord. That's why you eat ham at Easter. This is a huge moment in redemptive history. Jesus is announcing the ceremonial law is no longer binding. You see, Jesus is aiming for something more important. He's aiming for the heart. He's telling us it's not what's on the outside that makes us holy. It's what's inside and deep and profound. It's from the inner man, the mind, will, and emotions. Um, that's where the holiness comes from. The holiness that comes from the inside out that's supposed to characterize our lives. That's the kind of holiness that he's looking for. Listen to his words. This is a great quote from the uh, great Anglican uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle, a great commentator on the Gospels in the 19th century. He said, what is the first thing we need in order to be a Christian? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring to him? A broken and contrite heart. What is the true circumcision? Circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with the heart. Where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts by faith. What's the chief request wisdom makes to everyone? My son, give me your heart. Heart's a big deal in the Bible. And Jesus doesn't want superficial holiness. He wants transforming holiness from the inside out. That's what he's saying. And he's telling the Pharisees, that's not what you're about. You're about the superficial, ceremonial, ritual, outside holiness. It's man-made. I want my disciples transformed from the inside out. And so he warns the people, it's not the things that enter into them that make them unclean. It's what's on the inside that comes out that makes them unclean. So having rebuked the Pharisees, explained it to the people, now he turns to the third group. And so finally we see Jesus and the disciples, verse 12. Jesus and the disciples. Then the disciples came to him, uh, came and said to him, Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I mean, the Gospels, the disciples say all kinds of stupid stuff. This may be at the top of the list. Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, 
Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But whatever comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now Jesus warns his disciples about being too swayed or too concerned with the Pharisees. He was reminding them of the importance of right doctrine. And they come and they make this clueless statement. I said, this is probably not the top of the list of dumb things the disciples have said. You know, the Pharisees are offended. And I'm amazed the text doesn't say, no kidding. Because Jesus is obviously aware of this. That's the point. He meant to offend them. He's trying to show them he has no time for their teaching. It's utterly wrong. It's not what God uh, taught. And we ought to be offended by their teaching. Yes, he knows that the Pharisees are offended. But he goes on to tell them, let me warn you against being uh, too swayed by what they say and by what they think. God's going to judge them because their teaching is wrong. And he's telling his disciples basically that false doctrine kills. It's the blind leading the blind and they fall into a pit. False doctrine leads to false living. He's alerting them there's a great spiritual danger to false teaching by reminding them of its consequences. False teaching leads to judgment by God and it leads many astray into false ways of living. Bad doctrine leads to bad practice. And Jesus is very concerned the disciples not be affected by the false teaching of the Pharisees. Now there's a big difference here between the Pharisees and the disciples. It's important you see that because the Pharisees remain in spiritual ignorance because they reject Jesus' teaching. They're not willing to go to him and go to his word and submit to it. The disciples, on the other hand, <clears throat> come out of the, their spiritual ignorance because they go to Christ. They confess their ignorance. They asked him um, to instruct them. The Pharisees, in their pride, will not acknowledge their ignorance, and they remain ignorant. The disciples admit their ignorance, and they get instructed in the way of life. It's an important principle for the Christian life. How do we respond when we come to parts of God's Word that we don't like or that we don't understand? Is it our tendency to ignore them, reject them, change them? Is there a tendency to submit to what we don't understand and what we don't like and say, Jesus, you're the Lord, I don't get it, teach me. It doesn't matter what point in the Christian life you're at. There's always something more in the Bible that you haven't learned yet. So learn. Jesus, teach me. I don't know it. I don't get it. I haven't learned that yet. I don't understand. Teach me. That's the way of a disciple. You know, if, if you don't like something you read in the Bible and just change it, as many people do, that's not the way of the disciple. That's actually the way of the Pharisees. I'll make it more acceptable for me. I'll make it easier for me. And the way of the disciple is to submit to the authority of God's word 
and seek out and wait for the explanation of that truth. Every one of us in this room, myself included, has parts, things that they don't understand when it comes to doctrine. So learn them. Read, study, ask. If you don't learn anything else from this passage, learn that. That'd be a valuable lesson. But there's more than that here because Jesus makes it clear. And the primary point of this text is that holiness is a matter of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. Look again uh, here, uh, verse uh, 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. Our mouth is simply an indicator of what's in the heart. And what comes out of the mouth is an indicator of what's in there buried deep inside. The heart is the seed of the soul. They're often used interchangeably in the Bible. But if you also look at what the Bible says about the heart, it says that it's wicked, that it's contaminated. Jeremiah says it's deceitful. And the heart has to be changed and regenerated before a person can willingly obey God. Salvation begins in the heart by a believing reception of the word of God, while the Bible tells us rejecting the word of God hardens your heart. And so Jesus wants us to wage war on sin. And the way to do that, the route to do that, is by working on the heart. It's not in the external performance or outward forms or rituals or ceremonies. Holiness is not what we do to the outside. It's about what's happening on the inside, in the heart. And so Jesus teaches us one more thing here in the last two verses of this text. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. To eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. He speaks about the source of evil in the heart. He stresses that sin is not something that's superficial. It's profound. Sin isn't just about an individual, isolated, outward action that can be taken on or taken off. It can be done or undone uh, very easily. It's something deep. It's rooted in the very nature of our souls and our character. And holiness, uh, if it's going to be profound, has to deal with sin in a profound way. And Jesus makes it clear that the source of evil is not just ritual defilement. And the way he does this, I think, is very forceful. He's given us a catalog of sins based on the Ten Commandments. Basically gives us the second table of the Ten Commandments. He starts with murder and works his way through uh, false witness and slander. He walks you from the Sixth through the Tenth Commandment. And he says he's already dealt with the Fifth Commandment uh, earlier in the text. And he says these things don't happen because you ate bad food. These things happen because you have a bad heart. And that's important to realize. You know, you're not breaking the commandments because you didn't eat right. See, the big problem in the church, and I'm going to skip the conclusion that's listed there, but the big problem in the church is not the Riley Coopers of the world who have something disturbing going on inside them. It's you. It's me. We're the ones who have something disturbing going on inside of us. And judged by the standard of God's laws applied to our hearts, we're wretched, blind, defiled, and dirty. 
because the source of our uncleanness is found inside of us. The very core of who we are has to do with our hearts. And that means we can't fix ourselves. We can't wash ourselves. You can scrub all day long. You're not washing the heart. You can't make ourselves clean. We can't get inside the real us. We need someone from outside of us, someone who is pure, someone who is clean, someone who is holy, someone outside of us to get inside of us and clean us from the inside out. See, really, the question raised by all these washings, by the problems of our heart, is uh, simply the old uh, gospel hymn, What Can Wash Away My Sin? And the answer is, nothing but the blood of Jesus. 1 Peter 1 teaches us, You are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You have to see when you deal with issues of the heart, when you deal with sin on the inside, holiness that's supposed to be inside out, Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the only solution, and Jesus is the only solution for you. Only Jesus can wash away your sin. Only Jesus can change your heart. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've given us a king. Thank you that you enable us to see your son, Jesus. Open our eyes that we can see our sin, that we can see our hearts. Make us people who love your word and are transformed from the inside out by the sovereign work of your Holy Spirit. Make us people whose hearts have been changed, whose hearts have been cleansed so that we can be people who know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.